Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. You know, let's face it. We have some good minds. We have some pretty good minds. We have some not so good minds in this country. We're certainly seeing that at the moment, right, Jeff? <laughs> there are a couple. <laughs> but we also have a few great minds. And Jeff Goodby is one of them. And I've been lucky enough, Jeff, to get to travel with you all over the world. You've been so kind and graced our stage at Advertising Week in Australia and Sydney, where you killed it. I think that was vandalism. I think that was that talk. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah, that was fun. And London and New York, and we'll talk about that. But I, I, I'd love to go back and start our conversation in Providence, Rhode Island. And, <laughs> and you know, I just, just – what I say Providence, the floor is yours. Take it. So Providence was a great place for me to grow up because uh, I had to mix with all different kinds of kids, like rich kids and poor kids and all different colors. And, uh, you know, as a public school, I got beat up. You know, I, I was a smart kid. I was good at sports. So I knew a lot of people. But I, I think that it, it affected the way that um, I can talk to a lot of different kinds of people now, you know, and that helps with clients, but it helps me write things and communicate with people too, I think. So as a background, it was, it was great, you know, and, uh, the, the, the small state thing is very helpful too. I think it teaches you a certain humility when you deal with New Yorkers and, uh, Californians. Uh, I knew there was a shot <laughs> coming. It, 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 I, I, I would have lost on the over under how long it took. <laughs> I didn't get the Yankees in yet. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get to, we'll get to, and we'll certainly get to Lobel's. That's, uh, that's definitely coming. <laughs> So growing up, you went to public school, as did I, yeah. friends with, you know, regular neighborhood, regular people. Did you work as a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In high school, I worked as a plumber's apprentice, actually, which was helpful, you know. Um, I was I was piping gas stations, you know, with two-inch pipe, get down in a hole, and uh, lots of Lots of leaded gas that probably affected my uh, creative powers. Yeah, the mental faculties. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> slowed me down, grounded me. Uh, yeah, so, that, I mean, taking orders from people is very good for you. It teaches you to have a little bit of a sense of perspective and to push back on people, which was very important when I had to deal with people like Hal Reine, you know, later in life. Great. And any other jobs in high school? Um, I worked for... A lot of a lot of holes in the street. I worked for the Providence Gas Company for a while. Uh, I, I ran a playground. My uh, football coach got me a job running a playground in uh, in in town, and uh, that was fun. It was in not such a nice neighborhood, and so I I had to make sure that uh, lots of lots of kids didn't steal all the equipment every day, and right. uh, that was good. Run after kids with bats and stuff, um, and uh, that was that was also a now that I think about it, that was kind of a formative job as well. 
Probably the most formative job I had was when I got to college. I worked in a, in a Teamster warehouse when Jimmy Hoffa was the head of the Teamsters. In 1957, uh, a very unlikely man was elected president of the biggest, strongest, toughest union in the country. Uh, he's not the biggest man, but he is strong and tough. Uh, and the union is the United Brotherhood of Teamsters. Uh, he quit school after seventh grade. He worked his way up through local 299 in Detroit. And um, 1957, he rose to power, but um, also began to decline in that year. John McClellan's Select Committee on Improper Activities in the labor management field uh, pitted him against uh, another famous man, the committee's chief counsel, Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, they, th this relationship was described as a vendetta uh, on both sides after a time, led to a series of legal battles and 58 months in prison for my next guest for uh, jury tampering and pension fraud. Now at the age of 60, still vigorous, uh, almost two years after his release, he's hoping to resume leadership of the Teamsters, which raises a lot of questions. We welcome the highly controversial James Riddle Hoffa. And uh, my friend at the time, I was working in a gas station and wouldn't make any money. And he was the son of the secretary of the Teamsters in Rhode Island, Alec Bronovitsky. And he uh, he said, well, maybe my dad could get you a job at the warehouse like I'm doing because they're paying like $12 an hour. And I was like, holy shit, $12 an hour. Are you kidding me? So uh, I talked to his dad and his dad said, yeah, so go to the warehouse and you ask for this guy, Jim Metz. I can remember all the names. Ask for Jim Metz and uh, tell him that John Shalpak sent you down and said there'd be some work for you. So I said, who's John Shalpak? He said he's the head of the Teamsters in Rhode Island. I said, oh, OK. So I go there. I find this guy, Jim Metz, who's got, you know, he's up in the office. He's got a tie on. He looks like Jack Lemon. And uh, I, I say, John Shalpak sent me down, said you had some work. And he said, oh, wow. OK, come up here. So we go into his office and he pulls out a stack of applications and says, these are the applications that the college kids have sent in. And, you know, there aren't that many jobs here and I can't do this. And I said, well, John said there'd be some work. I don't know. And he, he says, I, you know, I've just came down. And he said, all right, fine. Come in tomorrow at three o'clock. So I come in and I'm picking boxes and working there. And about halfway through the summer, uh, there's a call. This is an enormous warehouse. You know, Jeff Goodby pick up a white courtesy phone to pick it up. Come to the office. So I come up there. There are a bunch of guys in the office, you know, Providence guys. And uh, say, uh, Jim Metz is there. Metz says to one of them, is this the kid you sent over? And I realized this must be John Schaupack. I'm about to get totally outed for this thing. And this guy looks at me. And then this total moment of absolute power over over uh, over Jim Metz, he said, I don't know. I can't remember every kid I send over. Great. <laughs> and they go, OK, fine. Go back to work. <laughs> oh, man, that's quite an education. It's an education. Okay. Yeah, it's good for you. So you got that education on one side of the coin. And on the other side, you must have had something on the ball because you got yourself into Harvard. Yeah, I got myself into Harvard because I was good. at I had good grades. And uh, even though I hung around with people that sometimes got into trouble, I never really got caught myself until <laughs> I went into advertising. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, so I, you know, I went to Harvard at a time when there was a lot of unrest on the campuses, and you know, it was the Vietnam War and everything. And uh, we must say no. 
that was another thing. Like in 1969, I went to Harvard and I decided people won't even understand what this is, but I decided to take myself out of the student deferment, which you could get at the time if you went to college and leave myself in the draft because I decided that the draft was actually unfair and and that, it, you know, it favored college kids in a way that I thought was unfair. So I left myself in the draft in 1969 and they had a, a, a lottery and I got number 217 and they drafted all the way up to 196 that year. I remember like they got very close to me near the end of the year. And um, I can remember telling my dad that I had done this and he thought I was an idiot. Um, but even worse, I told the people on the construction gang where I was uh, working that I, that I had done this and they really thought I was an idiot. They were like, you mean you could have got a deferment and you left yourself in the fucking draft? And I'm like, yeah. What What are you thinking, man? You know, they thought I was a total moron. <laughs> I learned a lot from that too. So that, that was an incredible time in culture in this country. I mean, we're in the midst of the Vietnam War. We sent uh, Man to the Moon for the first time. Man to the Moon. The Mets won the World Bobby, Series. Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, Bobby. The Mets won the World Series. Bobby, Bobby Kennedy. Kennedy and Martin Luther King had just been killed. Yeah, I mean, it was really, a, it was a crazy time to be alive. Um, I remember I remember when the when the guy landed on the moon very vividly. That was a big deal, Neil Armstrong, you know, that big deal. the shadow of the lunar module. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So we're in a, in a cultural moment now. There was a confluence of huge cultural events then, which would have an enormous impact on the future. Looking back on that era and remembering, as you just did, you know, the moon landing, how did that shape you and your years in Harvard and after Harvard? Um, I think it's, I think it gave everybody of that generation the feeling that, you know, we had to do something differently from the way it was being done before. You know, we were determined to, uh, to be different from our parents in some way and different from the way the culture was going. And, um, I don't think we actually succeeded at doing that, but we, I think we did succeed at doing the same things in a slightly different way. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the Silicon Valley successes of today are kind of modern day versions of, you know, old, uh, rust belt success and so on. Um, we found a way to make it seem cooler than it was, but it's still corporate success and it's still in many ways, um, acquisitive culture and uh and so on but it, it was definitely a a time when you realized that life was fragile you know people big big name people were getting assassinated being killed your friends got killed in vietnam i knew people that were killed in vietnam you felt more vulnerable to the world you know and here we are now 50 years later and we're in another moment where our fragility has been revealed revealed to us and and suddenly suddenly uh out of the sky and and even more it's invisible 
you know, and it turns, it's like, it's a little bit like uh, invasion of the body snatchers. You know, you don't know who is the enemy. Right. You don't know who has it. Right. There, there could be somebody right across from you that has it and you don't know. And, um, and so it's, it's a, it's a disturbing kind of thing that's affecting us all and making us all, um, have to seemingly turn inward, but it's had a very different effect in other ways. Like we just did a, a poll in our company and found that 90% of the people thought they were more connected now to the culture at work than they were before, which is crazy because they haven't physically been in the office, you know? And we asked how many wanted to come back to the office and they said, right now, 30%, only 30% wanted to come back, partly because of public transportation. People are afraid of that. And partly because they're home with their kids and dogs. And, you know, they there are no schools to send the kids to. There are no summer camps. So it's a difficult time to, uh, it's a difficult time to leave home and leave everything with your spouse or God knows who, grandma. You know? Yeah, I've never been a fan of the WFH culture that's become so pervasive. And I think a lot of it, you know, so, certainly the Silicon Valley companies very aggressively embrace that, you know, early on. Yeah. But you know what? I'm, you know, making do. I'm sure like you have you. When was the last time you were at your office? Uh, two and a half months ago. Yeah, same. You know, same. I stopped by to drop something off at one point, but didn't go inside. I left it with the guard. I haven't been in my office. Somebody went in to do some cleaning and they sent me a picture of my office and it was very nostalgic to see it. You know, I was like, oh, but I must say, I don't I don't miss the commute. The commute here is terrible. It's a New York like commute and um, it's it's awful getting to work. Um, some days it's an hour. So I would work a lot from the car, uh, which is distracting kind of work. You know, you don't realize how stressful it is to drive and talk yeah. to people and try to be intelligent. And caring at the same time, yeah, no, especially in a place like San Francisco or New York, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And and you know, people are flipping you off on the bridge, and you know, you're sad, you're 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 impatient. So, I mean, I think a lot of that stress being lifted. I remember the other day, I was thinking, oh my god, I got to go to the office because I got to go do this meeting. And I went, wait, no, I don't. I don't have to go to the office. I can just go in the other room and do it. This is amazing. Like I, I just drove down from the Napa Valley to be here in time for this, which is kind of why my machinery screwed up. I just walked into the house and there was Matt Schenkner. You know, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Oh God. You might want to go back to Napa if I, I might consider <laughs> reversing course quickly. <laughs> Let's go to, I think it might have been one of your first jobs. If I say the Beverly Times out loud, am I, oh, head, am I heading in the right direction? You're in the right direction. Yeah, that's the first thing I did when I got out of college was I interviewed to be a reporter. So I was like a city hall reporter in Boston, in north of Boston, all the little towns north of Boston. I would go to school committee meetings and police and shootings and fires and things like that. And then I eventually became a political reporter, um, which was, I must say, really boring to me. I did not like covering politics. I I felt like I was watching people do things instead of doing them myself, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, and you'd sit around and go, God, what a knucklehead. I wouldn't have said that, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and even though you had a certain amount of power over the process as a reporter 
Um, and it was fun in certain ways. Um, I thought, I thought it was like watching it through a glass. And, um, and so when my now wife and I moved to California, I was kind of lucky that I didn't get a newspaper job, you know, I think because it made me start thinking what else could I do? And, and I thought, well, I used to like reading these magazines in the library when I was in college, you know, like design magazines and stuff. Maybe I could get into adver- I knew nothing about advertising other than I'd read some cool ads. <laughs> so I started going to agencies. Yeah. What did you major in in college? English. English. And where did you pick up that, you know, talent with the big 64, you know, color box of Crayola crayons? Uh, my mom. My mom is a painter. And so I, uh, I, I painted as a kid. And I still do. I still do a lot of painting. Um, you know, the house has got a lot of stuff in it. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's sort of infinitely hard in a good way. It's like playing chess or something. You know, you'd never perfect it. You just get better. And, um, yeah. So she, she taught me how to draw and paint and think about color and care about the draftsmanship and so on. And, and actually when I worked as a reporter, I, I made money um, illustrating at the same time. So I was drawing for magazines. I drew from Mother Jones and Time Magazine and some other places and made very little money at that. But I really loved doing it. I loved doing it. I mean, you know, I, I would do it again. You know, it's, it was really fun. Do you remember the first thing that you had published in Time or Mother Jones? Yeah, the first thing that I had published in Mother Jones was a piece of it was um, a redesign of the magazine and I drew a like a big construction site with all of these tools and um, you know like uh, cranes and stuff and they were they were <laughs> it's really low, first level they were they were putting together like this big stone temple that said Mother Jones <laughs> and uh, and in time I illustrated something for a rare books thing. It was, it was an article about how rare books were starting to fetch really big prices on the market. So I drew a little corner bookstore, but it had like a ticker tape at the top of it with like prices going by for Dickens books and, you know, T.S. Eliot and things like that. It's like, it was like a stock ticker. And do you um, remember, were you proud? Did it, did it kind of just roll off your shoulders? No, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I think I think working in newspapers and drawing things for magazines got me addicted to, you know, doing things for big audiences, which is a kick. I mean, I still love I love to get a rise out of a lot of people at once. It's really, what's fun? All right, let me throw another name at you now. The name does the name Charles Martel ring a bell? Wow, how do you know these names? Amazing. Well, I. So I, when I was interviewing in San Francisco, I, I knew nothing about the advertising business and there was no there was no Internet. So I couldn't go online and learn anything. Um, I probably should have gone to a library and looked at, you know, advertising age or ad week or whatever existed at the time. But I didn't do that. I went to the yellow pages and just started going down the list of advertising agencies. And so. You know, I'd go into one place and it would be a big international agency and I'd go into the next place and it would be a couple of guys smoking dope and and um, I wouldn't know what to expect. So I went to a lot of places and finally at McCann Erickson, Charles Martel, the 
creative director said to me, you know, these illustrations are nice and the stories from the newspaper, but you're not going to ever get an advertising job unless you actually write some advertising. So go home, pick, and I still tell people this to this day, pick three campaigns that you like, make believe you work at those agencies and write some more stuff for those campaigns. Pick three campaigns you hate and write new things for those companies. Um, invent a few new products for three companies, four companies. And then the most important thing was he said, write a half-page autobiography so that you don't have to use a resume anymore. And um, this autobiography will tell people that you have a sense of humor and you wouldn't be a jerk to work with. So I went home and did that. And I, you know, I got a job in a week when I came back to the, I went to my mother-in-law's farm in Southern California and sat around. And as I tell people, I think I drank about a case of Coors and um, made my portfolio and brought it back to San Francisco. And uh, I just walked into J. Walter Thompson on the right day. They had just gotten the Chevron Standard Oil of California account and they hired me. It's crazy. I'm sure they went. We could just fire him if we have to. I mean, you know, it's nobody. So there's there's an unusual, unpredictable, unforeseeable theme emerging here. <laughs> we go back. You've spent a lot of time in and around gasoline. <laughs> I guess I did. I right? hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it, but I guess I did. In a way, I was like piping gasoline for the better part of my early life. Yeah, I I did exactly that. And um, so I wrote some, uh, I worked on a campaign. It actually wasn't originally my campaign, but I wrote some commercials that involved uh, uh, a dinosaur that was in the gas tank of cars that uh, that represented gasoline oil that had been made from dinosaurs that died and were crushed and became became oil. And uh and so these dinosaurs would live in the gas tank and, you know, they would put their head out and look around and say things. And, uh, <laughs> Fantastic. And, uh, oh my God. and, uh, Hal Reine saw that campaign and called me up. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about that phone call. Well, I didn't know who the guy was. I got to tell you, I was so green. I'd really only worked in advertising a couple of years and J. Walter Thompson, where I was working was not a hotbed of, awards and great work. In fact, that's something I want to say for your audience is that working at a place that's big and maybe it's not the best place in town is actually not a bad idea when you're just starting out because you get to work on everything. You know, they really need you. Like if you come into my place or widening Kennedy or someplace and you're a junior, you're not going to get to work on anything much for a long time. Um, whereas at, at JWT, I was able to work on things quickly and it was really good for me and them and worked out well. Anyway, so in two years, I was writing this animation stuff for a big national advertiser and Hal saw some of it and called up and said, actually, I think his, I think his assistant called me up and said, you know, Hal Ronnie wants to meet you. Um, he'll pay for your cab over. I said, Okay. <laughs> It's about six blocks, you know. So I, I went over late late one day and talked to him and he said, uh, yeah, I kind of kind of like what you what you've done and you know, maybe you'd like to come work here. And I said, uh, sure, absolutely. Oh, before I have to back up for one minute to tell the story because 
I went to I went to one of the senior writers at JWT and said that I'd been called by Hal Reine. And he said, you have an interview with God. <laughs> I said, really? He's that good. He said, oh, yeah, he's the best. He's the best guy in the city. He said, don't don't fuck it up. I said, OK, so. I went over to Hal's and Hal, Hal said, you know, I, I like your stuff. Um, maybe you'd like to come work here. Um, how much money would you like? And I said, um, maybe $26,000 a year. <laughs> and, and he said, he said, okay. And I went, great. Like it was a pretty big raise for me at the time. And he went, Oh shit. It's that's not so much money. You'll make way more money than that. I said, good. I'm glad to hear your confidence in me. That's awesome. So, uh, so I went to work there. I actually called his off. I didn't hear from him after that. And uh, I had gone in and, and resigned at JWT. And so one day I hadn't heard it, but like, what's the deal? So I called his office and I got his secretary, Nikki, on the phone. And I said, you know, um, this is Jeff Goodby, and I think that Hal hired me the other day, and um, I don't know when I'm supposed to come in or what the protocol is, but I have quit my job, so I'm kind of worried. And she yelled into the distance, uh, Hal, there's a Jeff Goodby on the phone. He says that you hired him, <laughs> and he wants to know when he should come in. And Hal says, uh, in the distance, you could hear him. He said, I hired him? Okay, well, have him come in on Saturday. <laughs> So I went oh, in on Saturday. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And was anybody there? Oh, yeah. The whole place. There was only about 26 people in the office. So I think I was the 26th person in his San Francisco office. And he'd already won like the Grand Prix at Cannes with that office. So it was really a good place. The expectations were so much higher than than what I had done before. You know, I the first day that I've gone that I went was there. Uh, I went into Hal's office and he was on the phone with his friend, um, a director, uh, friend of his. And he uh, he said to the guy, um, you know, hey, what's going on? And the friend obviously said to Hal, what, what are you doing? And Hal said, um, he looked right at me and he said, just trying to make some of the best fucking advertising in the world. What about you? <laughs> and he looked me right in the eye as he said that. <laughs> and, wow. he, and he meant it, you know. He thought he could do the best advertising in the world with 26 people, which was inspirational, you know. Um, he wasn't messing around. And he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing a campaign for the re-election of the president of the United States. And uh, <laughs> he said, sure, I'll have another drink. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. It's very often his own voice that's creating this feeling, and there's a cadence to it that's extremely soothing. But I think that after a while, you don't really pay attention to exactly what it's saying so much as a feeling that it creates, a feeling of warmth and comfort that was perfect for a guy like Reagan. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? I'll never forget the first time I walked in and showed the president the, the morning in America spots. 
he teared up. He basically said, uh, I wish I was that good. And what, I mean, how one of the great minds our industry's ever produced, what has stuck with you over the years from that experience with him and, and that, you know, early part of your career? Uh, you know, don't get bullied by strong personalities. Have a, have a, um, be smart enough to learn from them so that he was a big mentor for me, obviously. Um, but also to push back when you had to, and he respected that. And I think you have to learn the balance between those two things. So you don't, you're not, um, impudent about things, but you also, uh, kind of have a, you have a way of speaking to speaking the truth back to a guy like that. Um, it was very, very helpful to learn that. Beyond that, just so much attention to detail and, and standards of humor and, and beauty that were higher than any place else. So he would, he would, he would listen to something from you and say, it's not funny. Do you really think it's funny? And you'd go, I thought it was funny when I walked in here with it, but you're right. I don't anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, very, very high standards and planning, taking responsibility for the production of your thing. Like there were there were people that wrote very good scripts at JWT when I was there, but they never came out well because they didn't know how to take a great script and make it into something great. And Hal would never, never let you not do something great with a great piece of work. He would never blow it. He would not let you blow it. He made you plan and plan and cast perfectly, make sure every detail was right, plan out every second of the commercial so that, you know, and the print ads had to be gorgeous. They had to have photography that nobody had ever seen before, use photographers that nobody else uses, find people from magazines that don't do advertising, you know, find actors that don't do advertising and make the thing different and great. And you did a lot of great work there. Oh yeah. Great work. You know, the, and it was different from his. I mean, one of the things that I learned to do was to write like him so that he would go, okay, I like this guy. And then that gave me the license to write differently from him. And so I, you know, I started doing things like the Oakland days, Billy ball advertising and, you know, some of the stuff that I wrote for Gallo and um, corn nuts and, you know, a lot zanier than Hal ever did. Um, and took more chances. Hal was famous for supposedly using real people in advertising. I think I used a lot more real people than he ever did at his shop. And then when we started our place, we didn't have any money. So we not only used real people, we used our friends and everything. You know? <laughs> so it was even more real. One of my observations of today's C-suite is the they are coddled so much. They are so overprotected. Um, I remember many years ago, we were doing something on the West Coast, and it was one of the big Silicon Valley companies, and it was their big annual, you know, internal, you know, global hoo-ha, whatever it was. And um, all the top brass had suites with butlers. They all had their own golf carts. They didn't have to put a credit card down for incidentals. And someone was worried because 
I said, well, when they get there, they just go to the front desk. They'll know who they are. They'll take them to the golf cart. They'll, they'll be a butler. And they were worried that that one step of having to go to the desk yeah. to say their name, that that was too much for them. <laughs> and, and, and I feel like that culture is just so bad for business. Yeah. Do you see a lot of that executive coddling syndrome? I do. And of course, that, that, um, I mean, you know, it happens to our people and to some degree, you know, the, the, the salaries are so big, the, the titles are so big that to some degree, you can't help it. If you're hiring people away from other places, they've learned a bunch of bad habits like that. And, um, you kind of have to slowly teach them that even though they're making a lot of money, it doesn't mean, you know, everything. And, um, and that's an important thing, you know, it's an important thing to embrace. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I think that, yeah, for sure. And I was very lucky to, you know, to, to have a freelance account that allowed us to leave Riney and start a place without, without a lot of coddling in one room with one phone, no country club memberships or anything. And I, I remember, I tell people this, but it's really the truth. There was a, a deli nearby the Swiss Italian deli. And we used to go there and get sandwiches at lunchtime. And uh, we went there so much that one day the guy said to me, you know, you come in here so much, you should just, I'll give you a charge account and you just pay us at the end of the month, you know, like you, you just sign for it. And, and I went, holy shit, we have totally fucking made it. We have a charge account at the Swiss Italian. <laughs> I thought wow. that was amazing. That is progress. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would have the same view. <laughs> It was amazing. So go back to that early time. That was with uh, was that Amazing Software? Was that one of the key? Yeah, well, early... that was a freelance account. So when we were at Riney, there was an account guy named Bing Gordon who uh, came to us and said, "You know, I'm I'm um, I'm going to leave Riney and go be the marketing head of a new software company called Amazing Software, being put together by this Trip Hawkins." guy who's really a big wunderkind in the valley gaming guy and um and you know maybe you guys would want to freelance some stuff to get it started for me uh so we said sure so we started doing you know the there were gaming packages and, and it was a game company and the first thing we thought is amazing software is just a terrible name so we uh we suggested that they call it electronic artists like the United artists that Charlie Chaplin started. And, uh, and they said, we don't want to be artists. And, and we said, okay, how about electronic arts? And they went, okay, that's good. So they, they renamed themselves electronic arts. We did their logo and we started designing packages for them. And we came from the world of record covers. So we made these little packages. Nobody had ever done this before. Made little packages that had the floppy disks inside to play the games. And, they had interviews with the gaming um, programmers. Nobody had ever done that. Um, they had cool art on the covers with like, you know, Milton Glaser and things. Silverstein got these great photographers and artists to draw the covers. Um, I drew a couple of covers. And uh, uh, there was it was really wonderful stuff, big fold-out kind of lush-looking things. And, um, and, and we uh, – we, we, we said, you know, we're, we're doing so much photography and so much writing and our friends are actually freelancing for us while we're freelancing. We could start a company with this. And, um, and, and Silverstein and I were in a 
really good position at Riney. We probably would be the next creative directors of the place that we had stayed there, I think. Um, and Andy Berlin was not a happy guy at Riney. He actually left the place, went to Cunningham and Walsh or someplace, and he was over there and he was really not happy, grumpy all the time. So um, he was he was more motivated than we were, and he started doing these spreadsheets. Look, we can we can start a company. Okay, this is how much the phone would cost. This is the light bill. This is the rent, and uh, we added it all up. And one day I was over at Andy's house, just he and I, and we're drinking a bunch of scotch. And I can still remember we're out in his driveway peeing in the bushes somewhere after drinking all the scotch, and 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 I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, so I went to work the following day or two, and uh, Rich was there. I tell the story, but it's, it's a relatively true story. <laughs> it is a true story. Uh, Rich is a really impulsive guy, and he wanted to get to work. You know, eight eight thirty in the morning, he wanted to go in and quit. And I was, and I'm somebody I don't do that. I, like I just dragged my feet all day. No, I don't want to go in. I got to do this. Now I got to finish writing this. Let's do it in. Let's do it after lunch. Let's do it in the afternoon. Let's wait till the end of the day when he's having a bourbon. You know? So finally, at the end of the day, when he's having a bourbon, we go in there. You know, Rich is like coming around all afternoon. Let's go quit. Let's go quit. And I'm like, now give me, give me a minute. Give me a minute. So finally, at the end of the day, we go in there and house says, uh, "So um, what brings you fellows in here?" And Rich says, "Tell him." <laughs> you know, so I go, okay. <laughs> so I explain, you know, Hal's like, well, you know, if you get tired of making your own coffee, you should call me up. Um, have fun. That was that was about his that was about the level of his enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, I think he was very unhappy, but he realized that it was not going to be easy to talk us out of it. So he actually called us up a few days later and said. Um, Maybe you guys would want to help me with new business a little bit. You know, you could do some projects. And I, I said, okay. And he said, I could pay you $2,000 a month to do projects for us. You know, I mean, we'll just put you on a retainer. We never did any work. So about six months went by. He never asked for anything. I think it was really to keep us from hiring our friends away from him and uh, taking accounts. He's not stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, he called me up one day and said, uh, you know, I think you guys are doing fine. You don't need that $2,000 anymore. And it's okay if I just stop it, right? I said, yeah, sure. He said, okay, thanks. <laughs> that, that was it. And at what point did you guys say, hey, we're going to be okay. I think we got this figured out. <sighs> I, I still haven't really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's part of the fun is to do it. Just always be a little bit out over your skis, you know. Um, yeah. If you get complacent and you're not doing things that you're a little afraid of, you know, you're not having any, uh, you're not doing it right. You know, it's kind of like someone. I played I played doubles tennis a lot, and someone said to me, you know, if you're if you're if you're the net man and you're not getting passed down the line now, and then it means you're not trying to poach enough, <laughs> and that's right, kind of right. what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, listen, the minute you think you got it figured out, that's when you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have, shouldn't ever do that. You've always gone your own way, and and that includes sort of the overall approach, looking at the 
separation, putting together separation, creative and media. And you've always had sort of a, a different kind of view, you and Rich, about that. Let's talk about that a little bit. But we always thought media was really important to control as much as we could. And obviously, it's even more so now. Um, so we've always planned media and we've, and we still do. And um, we try to do it for all our clients. We don't always succeed. Um, and for a long time, we bought media. But then it just became such a low margin business, as you know, that it was silly. You know, we had you'd have to have a, like a phone bank of people there and it just wasn't worth it. The risk and and there were very good media companies to buy for you and so you they would they could buy a program for you, but um, I thought it was very important to connect the creative to the to the media by just because the way that people see something is just as important as the thing they see where they see it and how they see it you know I've always I've always said there are certain kinds of communications that you take in as a single person. And you go like, holy shit, how did they know that about me that I, you know, that I'm a fly fisherman and, and I need a weight forward line. That's crazy. They really, those are the guys I want to do business with who they know all about me. And there's another kind of advertising that's like, everybody is seeing this at the same time I'm seeing it. I can't get, wait to get to work and tell Matt about it tomorrow. He's going to think, he's going to think this was the funniest thing you ever saw. So there are things that you share like that. And and I believe that the media people, you know, knew that kind of thing and could control it for you and um, maximize it if you if you were open to learning. And a lot of creative people don't give a shit about media. In fact, they don't give it, they give a shit about anything except creative work, which is a real mistake because obviously all of this is a delivery system and you know selling the work, having great account people, having great planners, having great strategies having the stuff appear in the right places is all about whether the work is seen and gets famous and succeeds, you know, it's all important. Do you think the clients that have let you sort of, you know, play offense and defense, so to speak, have benefited from that? Definitely. And the, and the best clients took an interest in all of that themselves. You know, the best, the best clients, I mean, early on, I remember Stu Hyatt, my creative director at JWT, said the best people to work for are people that don't know anything about advertising and let you do make all the decisions, or they know exactly what they want and they tell you what it is. And and it's when you get in between that it's really hard. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was good advice in a way. Uh, but you have to earn the respect of the person at either end of that thing so that, you know, they either trust you to make decisions or to make decisions with them. Hopefully, that's the best. And um, you know, you got to earn that. You got to you got to listen. Yeah, the, the most important thing in this business is to be able to take your own head off, reach across the table, and put on the head of the other person across on the other side, and 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 know what you look like as you're doing this idiotic stuff. You know, um, like how do you how do you take something that's really crazy? couple of lizards are going to kill the frogs in your in your advertising campaign how do you sell an idea like that to people you know i mean you really have to you have to really have a, a light touch about things oh brother now i've seen it all what's that they gave the ferret a teleprompter a teleprompter 
Well, I guess he can't memorize his lines, huh? Memorize his lines? The guy's a door jam. Uh, I don't know why they give him so much slack. Well, because he's got a good look. A good look? Yeah, look, I mean, he looks like a little European filmmaker. I had a good look. Louis, no lizard has a good look. What are you talking about? We're not a good-looking species. We're not... You have no pride, Frank. I simply know my limitations. I am classically chiseled. I saw something that you and Rich just did that was really first-rate on Masterclass. Mm. And, and you talked about advertising and you talked about rejection. Yeah, yeah. That was a big We're both word. into that. Because I, I learned early on you have to be able to absorb rejection because it's a business of rejection. You know, the... You know, you're 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 coming up with an idea with somebody, and your partner rejects it, and then you take it to the creative director, and she rejects it. Then you take it to the client, and hoping it gets through there, but the client might reject it. And then, you know, the thing gets made, and your family sees it on TV, and your son says it sucks. And you know, it's a business of being able to absorb all those blows and still believe in the thing if you think it's right. You know, and sometimes the other people are right. But hopefully you can believe in the thing enough to do it, you know, and keep it keep it in the air. Um, conversely, you know, the people that work for you, you have to you have to be sensitive to the rejection, you know, when you're when you're rejecting things to them, and that, you know they you have to they have to be able to get up off the floor and do it again, and come back with something just as good. I try to teach people that. You know, sometimes getting things rejected is a blessing because if you can go away and start over, oftentimes the thing that you make is better than the first thing. But even more importantly, sometimes the client goes, you know, that first thing was actually pretty good. I'm starting to think about it again. And they go back to it, you know, which is awesome when that happens. It's very lucky. So when I look at your agency and your, your body of work and how much the world has changed, you know, in the last 20 years, I mean, all the tech driven stuff that we talk about now, none of it existed. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and my observation is you've always ridden the wave. The hallmark has been consistent, great work and that you've really managed to stay, you know, finger on the pulse and a step ahead at the same time. Does that come from you and Rich? Do you just have a great team? You know, how have you been able to really not only stay on the roller coaster, but thrive on the roller coaster? Um, I think we're willing to learn and listen to other people, you know, and we're very lucky to have incredibly smart people that want to work there. We've been very lucky in that regard. Um, it started with people long ago that were just terrific in the early going of the company that have gone on to be big creative directors and directors and heads of production companies and agencies and so on. And, and they've kind of built a tradition in the culture of, of quality that's drawn other people. And, and, you know, I, we are, we are just people that don't believe Rich and I don't believe that we can do it all ourselves, nor should we. And that a lot of the best ideas will come from other people and, and our job is to make sure that those things, like Riney did, make sure that those things get produced well, that they don't get rounded off, that they don't get killed, that that they get supported. If you know, there are a lot of places that don't support great ideas. You know, people don't know that they're great ideas, and we try to recognize great things and support them. And sometimes 
you know, like I sometimes I overdo it when I want to sell when I see somebody's come up with something that I really think is important to do. I can I can really get a little too aggressive about it sometimes with clients um, because I get passionate about making the thing, you know, and I want it to happen. Um, and sometimes things are time sensitive. We just did a series of commercials for Sam Adams that were all shot on Zoom. And and I said, you know, somebody's going to shoot something on Zoom eventually. And there have been a lot of fake Zoom commercials that where people have shot things on iPhones and then put them in those squares. But I really want to shoot it on Zoom. I don't really want to do it and, and cut it that way. Is everyone here? Your cousin from Boston. All right. Hey. Happy hour. Roll call. Sergeant Suds reporting for cold ones. Billy's here. I'm getting that jail body. I'm going to be more ripped than when I actually went to jail. Uh. I miss sports, man. I can't stop thinking about the goat. Hey, no, 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 no. No, do not ruin happy no, hour. No, talking no, about Tampa. Oh, boo, Florida. I am never leaving Massachusetts. Yeah, Billy, the judge made that very clear. I'm pet. Oh. What is that? Huh? Ma, hang up. I'm on the Zoom. Dude, you are not seriously still on dollar. Your poor family. Pay your cable bill. Yeah, I just steal your neighbor's Wi-Fi password. Like, I could, you know? No, it's pretty embarrassing, me. man. Guys, enough. Hey, enough. Can we please get a cheers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's celebrate. Here's to finding the second greatest of all time. It could happen. The dynasty lives. You never know. Yeah. It lives in Florida. Raven, what's wrong with you today? Ma, how do I leave meeting? And, and you know, and, and I was like, we have to do this soon because people, you know, the, the, the virus will go away and we won't have a chance to do this. And she, this is my baby. We have to do this now. And uh, I became a little obnoxious about it. You know, no, some of the creatives were dubious about whether it was a good idea or not. And it turned out to be a lot of fun and a great thing to do. But I think I think I got heavy with people about, you know, <laughs> no, we're going to do this. No, I don't want to hear that anymore. <laughs> OK, you sort of earned you sort of earned that. Was there something, Jeff, you look back and you say, God damn, that was such a great fucking idea. I still can't believe, you know, they said no. Are you kidding? I have many of those. <laughs> but so, some of them are really funny. I don't know whether we talked about this in the master class, but it did occur to me the other day that uh, when we. Uh, when we were working for Nike, we had this site. Oh, no, it was when we were pitching Levi's. That's what it was. We we're pitching Levi's and we went over there and they have a museum of um, famous Levi's from people, movie stars and, and sports stars and so on. So they had they had Levi's like that Marilyn Monroe had worn and Levi's that James Dean had worn. And Rich and I had this idea of going there and taking like a scraping from the inside of the jeans and making a vat of, of indigo ink out of that, put that in the vat. So you actually had the DNA of Marilyn Monroe in this vat of indigo. And then you would make a special edition of jeans that would cost like $500 a piece that actually had her DNA in, in the ink. We were really big on this idea. We loved it. <laughs> we did focus groups and people were like, it's creepy. <laughs> we're like no it's a great fucking idea no it's not creepy if we did it you would buy them <laughs> you know and we were just convinced <laughs> and the people at levi's we we got to the pitch it was a pitch we got to the pitch and we showed them that idea and they went it's creepy <laughs> we were like no it's a great idea. and then we lost the pitch i think because we were so insistent about it <laughs> uh, uh that's a great story yeah yeah 
And was there something that you pitched that you said, I don't know, this, you know, either you didn't feel great about it or you just didn't think it was going to click and it did? Um, you know, I, I'm famous for not believing we're going to win anything. So uh, I never had that feeling. I, I never feel like we shouldn't get it, nor do I feel like it's automatic that we're going to get it. I mean, I'm, I am cynical all the time about people that come back from pitches like, oh, man, we were so great. And Jeff did this and Matt did this and this thing was great and they loved this. And, and then you lose the pitch. <laughs> I've just done that too many times. So I, I tend not to overstate those things to myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm usually not that surprised. We're, you know, but there are pitches that we worked really hard on. Like, I'm sure that I think there was a big section in the masterclass about the Sega pitch that we did after Berlin left because we really wanted to win that pitch just to show the world that it didn't matter that, that Andy had left. And, you know, we went out of our way. The best thing we did for that pitch was, you know, they had about 150 different games available on the Sega Genesis at the time. And so we, um, we assigned people in the company to each game. And so you had to become a, an expert in this particular game. So every game we had an expert in, in the company that had learned the game. Then we took everybody to the pitch. We put them in bleachers around the pitch and Sega guys were like, why are all these people here? You know, the whole time. And, and I got to tell them that in the stands here is somebody that knows every single game that you guys have on the market right now and is an expert in it. And they started quizzing people. They were like, I remember because one of their games was a real dog. It was like a Disney thing with Mickey Mouse or something. It wasn't selling well. And they were like, I bet nobody learned the Mickey Mouse game. <laughs> and somebody puts their hand up because I can answer questions about that. It was great. It was, it was an awesome thing to do. Yeah. And that was, became a huge campaign. It did. It became really big. Hey, you still don't have a Sega CD? What are you waiting for, Nintendo to make one? You have seen the games, right? Wrong answer, man. Show them. <laughs> Want to see more? <laughs> And so much of your work, and I guess the one I always go back to is the Got Milk campaign, you know, you really transcended advertising and what you and Rich have done consistently, which no one else, you know, is close to what you've done there, is work that transcends our industry and is part of popular culture. Yeah, I love that. I love when that happens. And it's what we should all shoot for, you know, to make things that are famous. I think when it works, you know, when people adopt something and it becomes part of the language, you know, and people are, people are talking about it. It's the, it's the best. Like a long time ago, we made a thing called the Mill Valley Film Festival very early in our, in our company. And it was a trailer for a film festival in California and uh, about three minutes long. And we made up this town that knew all about film in real esoteric ways. And we got, you know, the hardware store guy and the, the people in the town to say these lines that were outlandishly esoteric for them. And they knew all about film and we shot this for nothing. Once a year, the eyes of the international film community 
return to the tiny town of Mill Valley, California, and its glorious cinematic celebration. Of course, we had the debut of Paris, Texas last year, and that was very nice. That was very nice. Very nice. I guess we're all looking forward to the film noir retrospective. Yeah, we like that deep focus. Well, there's a surface to the genre that, if anything, improves with age. They're bringing back that Jane Russell movie, Hot Blood. Ellen and Bob want an answer about the video fest. Are we going or not? Aaron says that the recent New Zealand films are better than the French New Wave. I did not. I just said they were reminiscent. That's stupid, Daddy. Where's their Truffaut? Where's their Godard? Rich. We are going to see the premiere of the Huxley Wexler film, Latino. We are Huxley Wexler's fans from way back. Medium cool. That, Vim Vendors, is such a nice young director. There should be more like him. So, uh, am I going to see you at the premiere of that new Paul Schrader film? Mishima? Yeah. No, I can't. My dad's taking us to Africa. Well, can't you get out of it? We drove the, um, the, the film mags, the film in the mags, we drove them to Los Angeles because we couldn't afford a plane ticket for two of us to go there. So we drove down in Berlin's car with, with all of the film and stuff and edited the thing. Well, it was, it was a nice piece and people really wanted to be involved with it. So we, we got people to license music for us that would never have licensed music. We got, um, we got, a. a fantasy records to mix it for us which was ridiculous was the best place in the world at the time and and then it played in in theaters around here and you could go to the theater and sit in the middle of people and when it came on people would go shut up shut up this is great this is great watch this watch this and it was such a thrill that i was like this is this is a drug you want this drug <laughs> What's on the horizon that you want to accomplish that you haven't done so far? You've won every award. There's no more fucking awards to win. So what is it no. that you want to get done that's still on your list? I mean, the fun of it is not knowing what it's going to be, you know, to make something famous. I think I think this whole COVID thing is going to be good for us in some ways. You know, it's going to calm us down. We've learned to work from home. We've learned to appreciate birds and <laughs> natural things and in in streets without traffic and so on and when we go back to that i think we're going to be a little bit sorry that it's gone it's strangely enough you know it's gonna it's gonna be a little bit of a letdown to get back on the bay bridge with all these fucking cars on it and motorcycles and stuff i hope it doesn't happen really and um and so i think in that environment there's going to be a different kind of hope for things that are liberating in a new way that we can't predict right now. And that's kind of what I hope somebody comes into my office with, you know, is something like that. Or yeah, I guess there's a certain comfort and excitement in the unknown. Totally. And if you don't like that, if you think, if you think it's got to be a predictable business or it'll make you crazy, you should go into something else. (laughs) This is not a good business for that. Well, this was uh, awesome. And, uh, you know, you are, you know, just a jewel for this industry. Yeah, thanks, man. You're fun to talk to. That's a big part of it. All right. 
All right, buddy. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, and uh, Matt. we'll stay Good to see we'll you, stay man. in touch. Stay healthy. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.